The carbon capture pipeline debate now goes county to county. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Tuesday, October 17th, and this is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we check in with landowners in Spink and Brown County about Summit Carbon Solutions' push to complete their project. Menopause is having something of a moment as a new rush of services targets Gen X women. We'll check in with the Prairie Doc team. The USD Knutson School of Law plants the flag for respect and solidarity. Nine flags, that is. We'll talk about the installation of tribal flags in the school's courtroom. Plus, the news is tough. Winter is coming. It is time for the grown-ups to play. We'll head to the state's Children's Museum after dark. That's later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SGPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. Later on in this hour, we're going to welcome back a few landowners who have talked to us before about the impact of the potential Summit Carbon Pipeline in their neck of the woods. But first, let's head to another South Dakota newsroom, or rather that newsroom has come to us. The Gerritsen Gazette is doing the kind of work that reminds everyone in South Dakota about the importance of local newspapers. In the past year, the Gazette has covered how a proposed carbon capture pipeline would impact that community, how it already is. Garrick Moritz is the editor of the Gerritsen Gazette, and he is with me now, now in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. It's your turn to come here. Well, hey, thank you. Yeah, it was very nice having you come visit us, uh, uh, too, Lori. Thank you very much. I'm going to do my best not to embarrass myself. I'm, I'm with one of my heroes of <laughs> South Stop. Dakota journalism. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> your family has been in the newspaper business for a long, long time. Tell me a little bit about your operation there at the Gazette. Um, well, I've uh, my family's been in the news business for five generations, owning papers in Minnesota and uh, South Dakota, Clark and Falkton specifically, uh, and uh yeah, I bought the Gazette in uh, 2015 and uh, spent my life savings. And uh, my my uh, very talented wife is my partner uh, in in every sense of the word. She's uh, she's got a real passion for journalism and she's very yeah. smart and savvy. So I'm lucky to have her, honestly. Um, fantastic. I want to talk a little bit. There's so many different things we could talk about. What's happening in the Garrison area, but. We're focusing today on this carbon capture pipeline. How long has this been, you know, almost its own beat for you? Oh, boy. Well, our first story we did back uh, on January 19th of 2022, um, it was on a Tuesday at around noon. Uh, and so super bad for me for deadlines and stuff because our <laughs> final deadlines are usually 5 o'clock on Tuesdays. Um, but thankfully, it was right uh, next door at the American Legion Post. There was about 130 local residents, farmers, and landowners that attended this uh, um, meeting that uh, the uh, Navigator Pipeline folks were having. Uh, and to be honest, it kind of fell flat for them. Um, they had their chance to make one, one, uh, local operator told me they had their chance to make their case to us, uh, and they didn't, uh, I, we have more questions and we're more dissatisfied now than before the meeting started. Flash forward to, to today and where we stand now with the PUC declining those permits, um, all the water that's under the bridge, you're probably not surprised then because you were seeing it happen right across the street. Oh, yes, I did. I, um, so after that first meeting, then there was a meeting over in Valley Springs the, of local farmers and landowners who got together and said, we got to do what we can to stop this at every turn, to oppose this at every turn. Um, 
when I got the news that the that that the navigator had been denied, I saw it on my computer feed. I'm like, wow, I, I, I that's great. It's great for that they, they've been fighting so hard, right? So I go down to get the mail, and there's uh, one of the women who I know has been deeply involved in it. Uh, uh, her name's Shuva. I'll, I don't. I think she'll forgive me for mentioning her. Um, <laughs> but uh, she hadn't heard. She'd been pacing at home, you know, biting her nails, and so she'd uh, put down her phone. She'd gone downtown for a little walk, do a little shopping. And I told her, hey, did you hear they got denied unanimous vote? And she did a little dance on Main Street Garrett's, and she was so excited, so happy. So when we had uh, the Summit Carbon Solutions people in um, to the program, and I asked them about this opposition, one of the things they said was, it's a very small but vocal minority. They're kind of rallied around a certain attorney. And that was kind of inconsistent with what I'd seen in your reporting and then also in the South Dakota Searchlight reporting. Josh Heyer had had, had quoted a farmer who said, it's like a tractor's been lifted off my chest. Now, that doesn't sound to me like somebody who is being controlled by a lawyer, but so is it a small but vocal minority? How would you characterize it? I've seen more signs now than I've seen ever before. It it grew. it, um, It grew and grew. Um, and I think the only reason that they, that uh, it was denied was because of the public groundswell. I think that's the PUC looked at that and they said, you know, we're going to make a lot of people angry if we rubber stamp this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's why. I think it's not a vocal minority at all. Even uh, what I've heard, even the people who have actually taken the easement money were not crying any tears at all really? that it was denied. All right, so let's talk about what happens next because in Minnehaha County, where Garrettson is, mm-hmm. um, there's setbacks that have been established by the county commission. Unless that's changed, nope, that and has I've not missed changed. it, nope. and now these companies have to go county by county by order of the P or by suggestion of the PUC. Like mm-hmm. if you want to move this forward, you have to convince these counties um, that you can comply with their requirements. So we're going to go to Spink County in a few minutes. But what happens next in Minnehaha County with the progression of this project. Well, I think any of the people involved, any of the landowners involved, know that this is not going away, and they're going to continue to be vocal and continue to show up at the Public Utilities Commission meetings for the county and the county commissioner's meeting. They're, they're not going away. They know that uh, they, 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 they want to be heard. This is their land, and they want to do it. You know, uh, Just the, the, the whole concept of having these easements as they are is not a good play. It's a one-time payment for perpetual use. Just think about that for a minute. You're signing away your rights as a landowner forever. And when these companies, Carbon Summit and uh, uh, and Navigator, no longer exist, who has that easement? What can they do with that? Uh, so I can understand. You can rightfully understand why people are upset about this. Um, so if they want to play ball, yeah, they've got to play by the rules. Um, they've got to, you know, make a good case, uh, not only to the people who own the land, but to the commissioners as well. Um, our listeners just heard, uh, SDPB's Evan Walton reporting. He's been covering this since the beginning as well, since the beginning of his time with us at least. And I, he's talking about what's happening next with a new coalition, coalition of people who say this needs to, the state legislature needs to consider eminent domain. They're banding together. They're sounded to me from that piece, like they're building steam. What do you see mm-hmm. coming into the January session? Well, for example? I, yeah. I, I, I certainly hope I can see some forward momentum on the legislature. It would be a very nice change, especially with all the number of people who have for the last two sessions said, you need to do something. You need to do something. The first year, uh, in 2022, the only 
only thing the legislature did was make sure that they could tax it. That is simply the only thing they really did. And uh, this last year, they talked a big game. A lot of legislatures and a lot of local legislators who have gone to bat for us in the past in Garrett's, and I will say that to their credit, they talked a lot, they talked a big game, but nothing really happened. And uh, when when the hearings happened, the, the 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 card that was played, and I think anybody who followed the story could see this coming. Like, oh, this will hurt South Dakota ethanol. Will it though? I wonder. Um, they'll still be making their product, and I love South Dakota ethanol. I use it in my own vehicles. But you know, uh, it's it's just are are you being hooked? You know, the the offer was hook us up to the network. That's that's what they wanted. They they wanted the tax credit, and it's a. But is there going to be any tangible benefits to the people for that? Yeah. I just don't see that. All right, so you can go online to our conversation with Summit Carbon Solution Leadership if you want to hear what they had to say before this conversation, and then stay tuned for our conversation with some landowners and a county commissioner from uh, Spink County. My guest for this last segment has been Garrick Moritz. He's editor of the Garrettson Gazette. Check out your local newspaper Thank wherever you. you're at in the state of South Dakota. What's your website so people uh, can find that yours? www.garrettsongazette.com. Awesome. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you, Lori. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Today, our on-call with the Prairie Doc team explores two important milestones in a woman's life and the very big space in between. Menarche is the first menstrual cycle. Menopause is when menstruation ceases. And a woman spends quite a bit of her life between those two points. And the milestones themselves greatly impact her overall health, and we know shockingly little about it. Dr. Deborah Johnson joins me by phone now to talk, take us on a journey from menarche to menopause. Deb, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Lori. I want to start with this uh, Prairie Doc Perspectives that you write for local newspapers across the state, and then we put up on our website as well, um, about how little we know about the female versus the male uh, health history and health studies. Tell me a little bit about put that put that in perspective that it's fairly recent that the medical. It, it, yeah, go ahead. I <laughs> actually remember because I was in medical school when um, the FDA kind of reversed themselves and said to drug companies, "Look, you you've got to." study women too. And I remember the, the <laughs> brouhaha that, that resulted from this um, and all the concerns and objections and um, uh, just the real revolution in that perspective. But uh, as, I, as I say in the article, you know, when you step back and think about it, how can it both make it too difficult to study a medicine and yet not matter uh, at the same time. So um, it, it is definitely a good thing. We are still really underrepresenting women in study populations compared to men. And, and that's true of, of members of ethnic minorities as well. And uh, we need to do a lot better at, at seeing how all of these differences impact different treatments. Um, we know uh, symptoms, for example, of heart disease in women are often very different from what we see in men. The classic 
holding my chest, elephant on my chest, pain into my left arm um, that we all think about for a heart attack may not be the same in women. Women may just be short of breath and nauseated, and um, uh, women are often very under-recognized for uh, the diseases that affect us every bit as much as they affect men. Cardiovascular disease kills a tremendous number of women every year, and we haven't been nearly as proactive at studying treatments in women as we have in men. You say in the printed piece, everyone deserves to know that the recommendations their doctors make are backed by science that includes people like them. Do you just ask do you say, you know, hey, is this uh, is this relevant for me, or is there something I should know? What's the good way to ask that question of your doctor? You know, it is it is really difficult because even as a physician, mm-hmm. I often don't have easy access to that kind of information. You know, I depend on. Um, I I depend on the distillation of the studies. I depend on uh, the experts to kind of look at the big picture because if you look at any single study, a lot of time this is, you should think of it as a conversation between the researchers. Um, You know, we found this and we found that and what's the difference? How did we find these different things? So it's, it can be very difficult to do that, especially with smaller and earlier studies, and that is a um, a key point. You know, a lot of times what gets reported on is the thing that sounds dramatic and interesting, uh, which is often something that's just a very small number of people, a preliminary research information, uh, and not the quote-unquote final answer. So um, it, it can be very difficult, but, you know, it is, it is important to, uh, to consider. It's important to ask, you know, is this, I know this is a, a, a recommendation that's generally made, but is it the same recommendation for women? For example, a conversation I had recently in the exam room with a patient was about aspirin and should she still be taking aspirin? Um, and some of the more recent data has suggested that maybe women don't benefit to the same degree that men do from aspirin and maybe we are more um, susceptible to some of those adverse side effects that kind of change the risk-benefit dynamic. A lot of the newer drugs have been studied in both men and women and maybe not as many women as um, we would like to see, but at least there's some data where, you know, some of those studies done prior to the early 1990s included virtually no women at all. Mm. Um, I said at the top of the hour that menopause is having a bit of a moment, and I think it has to do (laughs) with, you know, Gen X women getting a little older and then uh, seeking out information, new new studies, new, but also a lot of businesses, services, books that are targeting that gap of knowledge. Yes. Um, yes. Not all of them are going to be quality. <laughs> we know that. Yes. So let's talk menopause. Um, what are some of the the um, the early conversations you need to have with your doctor if you're having symptoms that you think might be related to menopause and you want to have that hormone conversation earlier rather than later? What what do you go to your physician with? So. Uh- 
I think any symptoms that you're having that are interfering with your quality of life are are worth at least a conversation. And um, medications, whether that's you know over-the-counter supplements or prescription medications or all of those kinds of things, are not necessarily your first first. Um, the first thing you want to reach for, you know, there's a lot of non-medicine things, you know, for the hot flashes, dressing in layers, keeping the fan handy, all of those kinds of things. And, you know, the, the symptoms that you have may not be the most important thing to be thinking about right now. Um, I really start thinking about bones and cardiovascular health and and some of those things that kind of impact your long-term well-being more than kind of the misery of the moment, so to speak. Um, and, And not every woman has a lot of symptoms as they kind of go through that transition. Some women certainly do, um, and some women are really miserable for a very long time, a lot longer than than I was led to understand they would uh, when I went through medical school. Um, but some women have very few symptoms at all as they go through menopause, except that their periods kind of change and then stop, and maybe they notice a little more that they're warmer than they used to be, and um, you know, maybe they have more vaginal dryness, but it's not something that really impacts their day-to-day life. Uh, so it's it's always worth having that conversation with your doctor. The average American woman kind of starts having some perimenopausal symptoms at 40 um, and then has her last period at 51. Again, that's average, and a lot of people are you know, on one end or the other of that spectrum. So you may be done in your early 40s and you may continue uh, to have somewhat regular periods into your mid-50s. So um, people are not average. (laughs) All right. I want to close with this, and that is I did my first story on menopause for a print magazine maybe like 20 years ago. And the woman I interviewed, I remember, said, this is the time where you better get right with Jesus. And what she meant was... Um, what you alluded to a few minutes ago, bone health, cardiovascular yeah. health, ha- nutrition, um, figuring out what that weight gain means for you. Is it something that you can just uh, tolerate and carry or is it something that's changed your health uh, picture overall? Uh, stress management. <laughs> so yeah. talk a little bit about the the opportunity, let's call it that of midlife for women to say, it is time for me to think deeply about the way I take care of my body. That is, that is so true. And, you know, I, I wish I could say that more people did that earlier, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I do think that midlife is, um, you know, is the time when a lot of people really start recognizing that, you know, I'm, I'm not immortal and Uh I really need to be thinking about this. And some of it may have to do with kind of the effects of that sandwich generation, because a lot of times when you're heading into midlife, when you're getting into your forties and your fifties, you're seeing your parents in their sixties and seventies and eighties, and you're starting to see the effects of aging for them. And that may 
influence your own recognition of of the advancing years. Maybe you're seeing your kids graduate from high school or graduate from college, and it's just kind of making you recognize that you are indeed getting older. So uh, it's a great time. This is a time when we often will start doing more screening. We're starting to think about colonoscopies and mammograms and uh, cholesterol. So, yeah. The great privilege of getting older. It's not yes. a given, it's so we're going to take it. On Call with the Prairie Doc broadcasts on SDPB-TV and on the Prairie Doc Facebook page. This episode uh, coming up of Monarchy to Menopause airs Thursday, October 19th. That's 7 p.m. Central, 6 Mountain. Dr. Deborah Johnston, always a delight to hear your voice. We'll see you next time. It's always good to talk to you. Bye-bye. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, last May, we sought perspectives from northeastern South Dakota about Summit Carbon Solutions' potential carbon capture pipeline. The pipeline's route snaked through several South Dakota counties in its projections, including Spink and Brown. Last month, the pipeline's application was denied by the South Dakota Public Utilities Commission, And we welcomed representatives from Summit reacting to that denial just a few weeks ago. So now let us bring back the voices we heard last spring from impacted counties to recap the latest developments and ask what happens next. First, Suzanne Smith is a county commissioner of Spink County, and she's with us on the phone. Commissioner Smith, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Lori, for having me. Ed Fishbach is a landowner from Spink County, and Craig Shoneman is a landowner from Brown County, and they're with me from SDPB's Tom and Danielle Amon Foundation Studio at Northern State University in Aberdeen. Ed, welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Lori. Craig, welcome back as well. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Lori, for having us on again. Craig, I want to start with you because the last time we talked with you, um, there was the condemnation process on your land and Summit Carbon Solution told us all those had ceased. Can you give us an update on that? Yes. uh, Through our attorney, uh, we've been notified that the condemnation process has ceased at this point. Uh, But I think one of the uh, things you need to understand is uh, Summit did leave open the uh, option that condemnation could reoccur down the road if they reapply and uh, um, want to go forward with their project. So paused, maybe not ceased, maybe paused is the better word. That would be correct. I think right now they're pausing, trying to reassess, and uh, um, they are leaving their options open. And Ed, when we talked to you, you were um, fairly certain that this site had shifted off your home quarter, but you were also concerned about something, you know, that might impact your neighbors. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening in your um, in your land, in your operation, and, and also with your conversations with your neighbors? Sure. Well, technically it is off of <clears throat> my land directly. Um, the route that was the permit that was rejected uh, was shifted to my neighbors about a mile away from me, but it still came up against some more of my land right on the border of it without exactly crossing it. So they didn't have to negotiate with me or offer me a settlement, but it still would have affected me. Um, as yeah. far as I could just add on the on the eminent domain things, I think it's important to remember that Summit didn't withdraw those eminent domain cases voluntarily. 
out of the goodness of their heart. They were forced to do that because our attorney, as Craig mentioned, filed a motion asking for those to be dismissed. And I think they knew we were going to be successful on that in view of the fact that the permit was rejected. All right. So a strategic pause. We'll add an adjective to the verb. Correct. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. And, and, and from your perspective, of course. Now, um, Suzanne is on the phone with us, uh, Commissioner Smith. We're told that the the conversation needs to go back to the counties and Spink County had a moratorium on this uh, pipeline project. What's the update from you? Well, it's interesting you ask. We, I just got out of a commissioner's meeting with uh, some summit representatives and um, they're wanting one of us to be a liaison with them to get uh, these easements and look at uh, development in pro- the property. And we just flat out told them, no, that isn't something we do. You go to the landowner and you talk to them. Um, one of the gentlemen in the back says, well, that gives the landowners all the power. Mm-hmm. And we said, that's right. You're now getting it. You're figuring this out. And they were not happy with, um, basically, they want our setbacks to go less than what we are. And we're not going to rewrite an ordinance. That's not going to happen. They gave us no information when uh, we wrote the ordinance. Um, One more thing. um, The CEO for Redfield Energy contacted one of our commissioners and actually two others separately wanting to meet with them that the project was still doable, but he wanted to talk with them. Well, then a letter came out to his shareholders that uh, the commissioners have screwed this all up and they're going to be losing money and it's all the commissioner's fault because of the setback. So I don't know. I don't know where to go next. Hmm. Have you had conversations with the PUC commissioners, Suzanne? Have I? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No. No. Because last time we talked, you hadn't had a lot of contact and you were sort of waiting for them to have that kind of communication and you're saying they still really have not. Right. Well... And I do believe that when the FEMSA report came out that threw everything back to the local government was when Summit decided they got to start playing nice. But I don't see it happening. All right. FEMSA, for listeners who don't know, that's an acronym for Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. Um, Ed or um, Craig, I feel like one of you wanted to jump in there. Was there something you wanted to add? Yeah. Yeah, I would like to just add, uh, I agree with everything Suzanne said. There's another thing that they're trying to do with the counties right now. We call it a bribe. They're actually trying to offer money to all the affected counties right now. They've offered like $50,000 up front, and then they're trying to get the counties to accept $1,000 a mile for every mile of pipeline that the counties let them come in with. I mean, this is, in our opinion, we expected that they would do something like this, but we look at it and call it a bribe. They're just trying to bribe the counties. And thankfully, we have people like Suzanne that represents me on, the, on our commission in place there that aren't going to fall for that. And uh, uh, this is if this is a company that projects the image now that they're pushing a reset button and they're going to start from scratch and be a whole different company, like Suzanne said earlier, we just aren't seeing it. It's actually getting worse some of the threats and intimidation. And to be honest with you, I think they're just trying to wear down our commissioners and basically show up at every meeting now and harass them with new members that they brought up from other states. 
And that's just not going to work. So, um, Craig, tell me a little bit. One of the things Lee Blank said from Summit Carbon when he was here, that that, it, that this is a new adaptation. It's a new innovation. I mean, it's not new technology, but it's a new way of thinking. And farmers have done this, you know, forever, have shifted uh, gears into, you know, what an operation might look like. And he said they just need to realize that, um, quote, this goes back to the balance sheet of the U.S. farmer. So when we talk about that money, and do you do you feel like this is a money-making opportunity and that you're missing out on the big picture of what this would mean for people's bottom lines, Craig? Well, <clears throat> you know, I did listen to the um, interview that um, Mr. Blank and Mr. Powell had on um, SDPB. And, you know, I, and I heard and, and I heard very clearly what uh, Lee Blank said. And, you know, there are opportunities out there uh, for markets um, with the sustainable aviation fuel. And I think it gets back to what Suzanne just said. What they don't understand is that it's the people's lands that are affected and with this pipeline. So in all of Lee's interview, he never once spoke of uh, property rights issues that were out there. And I think that's what's probably near and dear to my heart is the property rights. I mean, there's markets out there. Uh, these markets are not um, what I would call open markets. They're created by government policy, and I understand ethanol was part of that policy. But I think, you know, when you have a market out there, um, there's opportunities, and I think it'll be there. Uh, I think carbon sequestration is yet to be. I know it's being done. I, I think in, in the scope of time, it's, it's very minuscule. They've been doing it for 20 years, but if you look at back at it, 20 years is not very long, so we don't know the effects of capturing CO2 in the earth. Mm -hmm. um, can we create sustainable aviation fuel? Yes, but you have to understand it's, it's a market-driven. Um, they're going to go, the airlines are going to buy it wherever they can, the cheapest they can. So to guarantee that South Dakota is going to miss out on a market opportunity, is, is, there's no guarantee there at all. Ed, let's talk a little bit about property rights and what needs to happen in your uh, point of view in the South Dakota legislative session. Is there something that state lawmakers need to be driving toward? Well, yes. <clears throat> Number one, in my opinion, and I think most of us uh, in our group, the landowners for eminent domain reform, are going to insist upon that we need to reform the current statute of eminent domain that allows a, a private foreign-backed, out-of-state company like Summit Carbon Solutions to come in and to initiate eminent domain proceedings against landowners and also to begin surveying, whether it's just uh, normal surveying, walking on property, or doing the invasive surveys, drilling through people's property. Those things should not be allowed just because a company like that has a permit that is pending before the PUC. We in, we're going to insist at the, and try to get the law changed to where they can't do those things until they have an actual permit granted. Uh, we just feel that's just common sense. Uh, no one said, should uh, be subjected to those things before they even have a permit, and that's according to state law right now, they're allowed to do that. Ed, you said foreign-backed. We don't know their investors yet, do we? We know some of that them. That was some of them, Okay. So be yeah, specific. there is Where a South Korean company that owns 10% of them. That's one okay. of them, and, and they have ties to a couple other countries, too, that we know of. Uh, we don't have the amounts, but we do know that there are some foreign back. 
entities. So, and as far as Navigator was concerned, under oath during the during their hearing, uh, their official even admitted that that it was backed by the United Arab Emirates was one of their two big uh, contributors. I want to wrap up with the same question for all three of you, which is, and we'll start with you, Ed, and then go to Craig and close with Suzanne. Do you feel like you won? I do. Uh, I think that we've got them on the. We've got momentum. Uh, we've definitely got them on their heels. Uh, unfortunately, I think Navigator, or fortunately, Navigator, I think has realized that, and we're hearing that maybe they may be abandoning this thing, uh, their attempts. Summit evidently doesn't seem to have gotten the message yet. Um, could I just point out quickly uh, too, also that uh, we have a coalition that just released did some polling here and it was had a press conference last Thursday and released the results of a scientific poll taken statewide. I mean, we get I heard Mr. Blank say on his interview that uh, we are a vocal minority and just a loud minority. Well, according to those poll results, 58% of the state residents in South Dakota oppose this pipeline with only 29% support. And then when you tell people that they are using eminent domain, it shoots up to 78% opposition. And another question that was asked of respondents is what's your opinion of Summit Carbon Solutions, the company? They have a 10% favorability rating. So I think uh, any, any more statements about us being the vocal minority, I think we can put those to rest now. Craig, we're coming up on time. Do you feel like you won or do you feel like you're beset by a new set of challenges? Well, I, I don't know that I ever thought of it as a winner or lose type deal. I, you know, I think if if we won, it's we won because we're starting to educate people and they're becoming more aware of what needs to be done to protect property rights. So for me, that's a win because I think it opened the eyes of the public and the voters and the legislature out there that there are some concerns that need to be addressed to make sure that property rights issues are addressed in South Dakota. Commissioner Smith, what's next for you? Um, well, as a commissioner, I really can't say win or lose. Um, I think there's a long road ahead of us yet with this company that we're going to have to deal with. But um, I, I think today maybe there was a clear message that, um, yes, landowners are in charge, and that's where it should be. We're going to wrap up our conversation here. I'll direct listeners to sdpb.org slash news for ongoing coverage from our newsroom and Evan Walton on this uh, project as it continues, and we continue to have these conversations. Suzanne Smith is a county commissioner with Spink County at Fishbach, landowner from Spink County, and Craig Shoneman, a landowner in Brown County. Thank all three of you um, from me for stopping by and giving us an update. We'll reach out again and see how the story progresses. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Lori. Thanks, Lori. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. During this week in 1979, Dr. Theodore Schultz was announced as one of two recipients of the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences. Schultz, who was born in Arlington, South Dakota, was recognized for research involving the economic development and challenges of developing countries. Though destined for a career of research and study, he took a non-traditional educational path. There was a labor shortage during World War I, so Schultz dropped out of school at the age of 14 to join the workforce. 
He later resumed his education and eventually graduated from South Dakota State College in 1927. He further advanced his studies at the University of Wisconsin. It was there he met and married his wife, Esther. For the rest of his academic life, Esther served as his editor, and Schultz acknowledged her contributions often during his lectures. Schultz studied the agricultural economy, and he theorized the relationships and imbalance between relative poverty and underdevelopment in ag. He was most interested in how that compared with the higher productivity and higher income levels in industry and other urban economic activities. He also cared about global improvement and progress for all nations by changing economic and agricultural practices. And later, as chair of the American Famine Mission to India, he was able to persuade the U.S. government to ship meat and grain to nations with starving populations. Arlington's own Dr. Theodore Schultz was recognized with the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences that happened this week in 1979. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant, a writer and professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan University. More in the moment is after the break. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. Listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Well, there are nine new flags proudly displayed in the courtroom at USD's Knudsen School of Law. Each flag represents one of South Dakota's nine Native American nations. Neil Fulton is the dean of the law school at USD, and he's with us now on the phone to talk about the project and the significance of the new flags. Dean Fulton, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here, Lori. So the idea of these flags came from a law student, a graduate. Tell me a little bit about the origins. Yeah, so we had had the flag of the Rosebud tribe that was gifted when argument was heard in a case by the family of Crazy Horse challenging the appropriation of his name to market a malt liquor beverage. And Miranda Herman, who graduated last year, approached me in her 3L year and said, could my tribe's flag be up there too? Um, and it was one of those flashes of insight where I realized, gosh, they all should be, and they should have been some time ago. So we worked uh, to obtain tribes, uh, flags from all nine tribes, and then this summer had them installed, and they were there at orientation, and we wanted to do a dedication ceremony, right? So it took us until recently to have it this uh, at the law school yesterday. So it was, just a, it was a great project and great event. Yeah, so more than a gesture for USD Knudsen School of Law. Tell me a little bit about what, uh, you know, the young lawyers learn, um, recruiting lawyers from tribal nations. Tell me a little bit about your overall programs uh, with with um, tribal sovereignty. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, Lori, we are the state's law school, and I think that means we should be a resource to everyone who makes their home in South Dakota. And that starts with being a resource to all of the court systems, federal, state, and tribal in South Dakota, that we are a home to all the lawyers, judges, and people interested in the administration of justice 
here in South Dakota, and that takes place in all 11 court systems. Certainly, I think if, if you are a student coming to USD and looking around, I hope one of the things that that conveys is that we want this to be your home. Miranda had the opportunity to speak yesterday, and, and she noted that at orientation and at graduation, I said the law school is your home and always will be. And she observed that having the flag of her tribe and all the tribes up there really made that a reality. So I think it's reflective of what our community is. I think it's reflective of our commitment to try and advance the engagement with tribal communities and tribal justice systems through the work of Professor Emeritus Frank Palmersheim and now Professor Ann Tweedy and our implementation of a certificate in Indian law that allows our graduates to have recognized expertise and excellence in a particularly important area of law in South Dakota. There is much work to be done. Tell me about some initiatives for the future. What are you hoping the future holds? You know, one, what struck me yesterday looking at a room full of people and the courtroom was packed is just, I say frequently, the law school is a community of excellence, service, and leadership, and the first word matters as much as the other three. I saw and felt community. Um, That really resonated through there, and I hope that that is something that all of us take very seriously every day, that we engage everyone around us in the law school and the larger legal community. Certainly, we want to continue to attract tribal members from South Dakota and beyond to go to law school here. We've had some initiatives working with state, federal, and tribal law enforcement court systems, practicing lawyers to offer a law camp to middle school students, particularly in rural areas in Indian country. We've extended that to South Dakota and now into Nebraska to get them thinking about careers in the law. I think that's an important thing to do. And I think beyond that, it is just continuing to build on the legacy of Frank Palmersheim, Professor Tweedy, others who've done you know, important work in Indian country to be a resource to all of the lawyers, judges, and court systems in South Dakota. Yeah. Um, you mentioned making sure the dedication ceremony was done right and taking the time to plan it. Are there other... Um, things that you want to surface or lift up from what happened yesterday to the rest of South Dakota to say like, yeah, I wish you could have been here to see this or to feel this. Yeah. Um, you had to be there. Uh, it was, yeah. it was pretty cool. I mean, we, <laughs> we, we began with, you know, a prayer by Richard Booth's camp, um, who's a Lakota elder, uh, which was very moving the coyote nation drum group, opened with song and then provided two dedication songs at the end. Um, President Gestrin was here and spoke. I think that speaks to her commitment to Native students and to USD's larger commitment to Indian country and Native students. And then we were really pleased to welcome back Miranda as an alumna to speak and, and Seth Pierman, who's the Attorney General at Flandreau, and Andrew Robertson, who's a magistrate judge in Sioux Falls and the first native judge in South Dakota's unified judicial system, and Marilyn Allen, um, who is the current Native American Law Student Association president. Each of them spoke really movingly in different ways about the significance of this, about the history of relations between Indian country and the rest of South Dakota. Uh, They were realistic and hopeful. That was remarkable. And I guess the thing I would tell anyone about yesterday is I noted that we should have done this before, um, but none of us can alter the past, but all of us is responsible for what we make of the future. 
And I think yesterday was a real step forward together as a community to a better future, to work together to administer justice in all 11 court systems in South Dakota. It was really cool. USD Knutson Law School Dean Neil Fulton. Dean Fulton, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Lori. All right. Well, the news has been a bit rough in the past few weeks, so let's take some time to honor and process that. And I hope you take some time for yourself if you've been going through personal turbulence, and let's introduce all of us to a way to help weather it. I say introduce, but it's a strategy you've definitely used before, maybe just a few years ago, maybe a few decades ago, maybe even longer than that. But no matter your age, play is awfully good for the soul. That is why the Children's Museum of South Dakota is throwing open its doors for a special kind of playtime this Friday. It is welcoming people who are children at heart and ages 21 and older. Carrie Vilhauer is the Director of Marketing at the Children's Museum in South Dakota. She is with us now on the phone to preview their 21 and up Museum After Dark Party. Carrie, welcome back, friend. Oh, thank you, Lori. I'm so happy to be here. Once again, I'm just ready to play. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> this event last year was a pretty big success, right? It was phenomenal. Um, didn't realize the need that we all have to play, but <laughs> the event itself, basically, we you're right. We open up our doors to um, those age 21 and up to come and play the way that they want to play. Um, oftentimes people say to us they wish they could come visit the Children's Museum of South Dakota, but they're not a child. And we're like, well, adults play too. So um, if you don't want to come during our regular hours, we made this event special for those people. Yeah, you don't want to feel creepy being like the person who goes in without a kid. But it's there's enough there for adults to do that's awfully fun. So why not uh, why not create that space for them? Tell me a little bit about some of the games because I would really like to know what throwing things off the balcony um, game it's is going exactly, to be. <laughs> <laughs> exactly as it says, as a matter of fact. You might get away with a few more things at this event. Um, we had a post on our social media with somebody throwing a fish across our grocery store as well. It doesn't typically happen. On a, with children, you can be surprised, but the adults get a little silly. But yeah, I mean, when is the last time you're able to throw something off the balcony? I mean, um, it's, it's a lot of fun. We're, we're the only place that has the most realistic-looking pork chop. Um, True. And, and fish and all sorts of fun items in our grocery store. So I've already um, fact-checked yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to fact-check <laughs> that because I've already done it, but I could come back. I I love, what I love about this place, too, is, like, it's just everything is so, is tactile the right word? You know, you get to touch everything. Everything is, is waiting for your hands. And grown-ups aren't, you know... I always, every time, Carrie, I go to like an art museum, I love to go to the gift shop. And I used to think that that was like a negative thing. Like I was just being a, you know, consumer, like, what can you buy? And then I realized one day it was like, no, I need to touch something after all that not touching. <laughs> and you go to the <laughs> gift shop and you can like pet a scarf or you can like hold a coaster of stone. How important in the work that you do is just giving, giving visitors, children and now adults, this opportunity to just have hands-on all of that learning. And that, that is um, the biggest part of, about what we do. We have a lot of different toys. We call them loose parts in our area that um, <laughs> move throughout the museum. I mean, yeah. anything from, like, we have a, a mail carrier who, who can deliver mail to every single one of our exhibits. All of our exhibits interrelate. You can make your own sandwich. You can serve the sandwich. You can bring the sandwich 
um, across the entire museum and give it to somebody in a hunt in Mozambique. So um, we really are about kind of sparking that creative um, ideas and, um, and just doing things differently and thinking outside of the box. I mean, when you're yeah. when you're engaging fully with your hands and your and your brain, you're you're learning um, yeah. fully as well. And having some fun, give it to yourself as a gift, and uh, that's also a way to support the Children's Museum. The, there is an admission fee. You do have to get your tickets in advance. We'll put some links up if you're interested in finding out more on our website at sdpb.org. Um, also, you can just call the Children's Museum, 605-692-6700. Um, Carrie Vilhauer, this, uh, give me the dates one more time so I, we know when this is. Yeah, this Friday, October 20th, 7 to 10 p.m. So there you make go. the road trip up to Brookings. If you want to stay, we've got some hotel partners, too. So. Awesome. Awesome. We'll put all that information up online. You did good work, as always, Carrie, and uh, make time for play. We really appreciate that. Thank you, Lori. Thanks for being here. And that is our show for today. We hope that it served you tomorrow on In the Moment. We are going to, of course, have a conversation with our Dakota political junkies and SDPB's Richard Tubles is going to be here. Um, I love talking to him on the radio. He's going to come back and talk about Tatanka, which is an SDPB project that intersects with that Ken Burns uh, program, the American Buffalo. But this one is uh, by us, for us in South Dakota, talking about um, indigenous work with bison revitalization and so much more. Can't wait to talk to Richard tomorrow. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, we thank you very much for listening.